We've been making our way through the book of Esther. Mordecai and Esther did not want the people of God to forget how God has moved in their midst. The powerful ways that God had demonstrated that he is sovereign and that he is in control, that he is moving his plan to completion. Because you remember the events. There was a wicked guy by the name of Haman. He became the number two guy in the Persian Empire. And he was able to convince the king that there was a group of people, didn't actually name them, just said, you know, they got different laws and it sure me a lot better if they weren't here. And he was able to get a law that stated that on the 14th day of Adar, the final month of the Jewish calendar, that they could actually exterminate all Jews in the Persian Empire. And so the date was set. But God had other plans. And he shows himself to be faithful. And as we've made our way through the book of Esther, we have been seeing the sovereignty of God working through providence to bring about changes for his people and in his people. And we must celebrate. Now, you might wonder, like, why, why must believers celebrate God's faithfulness? Well, as we go through this final section in the book of Esther, I'm going to highlight why. Why must believers celebrate God's faithfulness? Well, let me tell you, first of all, to remember his power in the past. Look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, all of the events that we looked at last week in chapter 9, where God allowed the Jewish people, because remember, Mordecai, he actually, because his stepdaughter, Esther, had become queen, he actually had been working at the king's uh, wall there, kind of doing official business. He actually heard about a plot to assassinate the king, warn the king through Esther, and five years later was recognized for such. And once it became known, after Esther had actually declared through a couple of banquets that, that this Haman had sought to exterminate her people and that she herself was Jewish, Mordecai eventually rose and became the number two man in the empire. God allowed him then to make a decree that said that the Jews could fight and defend themselves. And you remember that Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, signed off it. The signet ring went out. And so the Jews were able to defend themselves, and they did. Even though there was about 76,000 Persians, whether they were mercenaries or just people that had a hatred for the Jewish people, that attacked and were killed because the Jews then could defend themselves. Well, these are the events that Mordecai wrote about. And he sent letters to all the Jews. You see that in verse 20? Who were in all the provinces of the king, Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar. That's the final month in the Jewish calendar. That was the, that was the specific day that the Jews were to be annihilated and they defended themselves and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because remember that Queen Esther appealed to the king and said, I, I would like to ask that the Jews could defend themselves for one more day. She likely had heard that there was going to be kind of an uprising and after the Jews had no longer had protection to defend themselves, that then they were going to be killed. Well, she asked for a second day, and sure enough, in the capital city of Susa, there were 300 that did just that. So he's explaining what took place on both days. Verse 22, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. What he's saying is we need to celebrate not the killing of people that tried to exterminate us, but that God 
took our mourning and made it a holiday. He took our sorrow and made it gladness. He turned it all around. In fact, he says, verse 22, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. God is the one who, like he said in verse 22, he turned it around. He made it completely different. And only God could do that. And that is why we must celebrate God's faithfulness, to remember his power in the past. And so he goes on to write, thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, so he's referencing, remember, the Agagites had been, their, their descendants of the Amalekites who had been persecuting the Jewish people all the way back to the time where the people of Israel were moving into the promised land. And when they're on their exodus, the Amalekites were seeking to kill them. In fact, God said, these people will be judged and they'll be completely eliminated. The Agagites, King Agag, he is, uh, he is the king that, that when Saul was supposed to actually wipe him out, spared him, and eventually, though, he was killed by the prophet Samuel. Now, when he's referencing Haman, he's saying he is of the same line. When Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. Do you remember that? Remember when, when Haman wanted to find out when do the gods want the Jews exterminated? Remember the situation? He was all upset because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. So what he just said is, listen, not only am I going to end your life, I'm going to end all of your people's lives because you played the religious card and said that you were Jewish. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I will have all the Jews exterminated, and he was able to convince the king to do just that. He said, I'll pay you off with 10,000 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to about 70% of what the king made in about one year through all the tributes that he was receiving. The king thought, that's a pretty good idea to eliminate these people. And so what Haman did, though, prior to that event of going to the king, is he went to their astrologers, and he went and had them cast die, cast lots to find out the day that the gods would like the Jews exterminated, because they believed that the Persian gods at the beginning of the year decided the fate of humans. And so this is kind of astrology. This is like people going to Ouija boards, and these are people that are looking to the occult to give direction for their lives, specifically for an evil tent of killing the Jews. Well, God turned it around. But look at verse 25. But when it came to the king's attention through Esther, he commanded by letter that this, his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And that's exactly what happened. He kind of condenses this. He just says the king sent a letter, and, and not only did Haman die, after it had been found that he had pinpointed Mordecai, tried, wanted to get him eliminated first, even before the day of killing all the Jews, and then later Haman's own sons were hung on the gallows. They were actually impaled. And if you remember that these are the events that took place, and we looked at, at them in chapter 9. Now, what Mordecai is writing is he's, he's explaining why it's a two-day celebration, okay? But the second thing he's doing is he, he's doing something that's completely unique to all of Scripture. He's calling for a national festival, a national celebration. All of the other Jewish celebrations that are all written in the law, written by Moses as God ordained, this is not something that was written in the law this is a response of God's people to the faithfulness and the powerful nature of God. 
It's, it's, a, it's a designed to be celebrating God's faithfulness to even a people that were far away from him. They were like in the Persian Empire, hadn't gone back to the Promised Land, and it shows that God is faithful even when his people aren't. Even when his people might amalgamate into a society and they make a lot of bad decisions, God is faithful. And he showed himself to be strong and mighty, and we need to celebrate that. And that's why these, this is being written. That's why we must celebrate God's faithfulness, to remember his power in the past. And that is one of the reasons why we read scripture. And that is one of the reasons why we celebrate God's great and mighty acts, because our hearts and our minds have a tendency to forget. And we're just going to kind of move on. And we do so to, it, it kind of erodes our faith. And, our, and if our kids don't understand what, how God has been faithful, then no wonder they're just attracted to the things they hear out in the world because no one's excited or even remembering about how powerful and how mighty God is. So why must we celebrate God's faithfulness? To remember his power in the past. But let me tell you another reason why. And that is to renew the passion of his people. We don't just recall but we rejoice, and there is something that takes place in the lives of the believers when we rejoice in God's faithfulness in the past. Their passion is renewed. And so, looking at it in verse 26, they, were, they set this in motion where this is going to be like a national day of celebration and remembrance. Verse 26, therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Okay, so remember Pur is... Lot, die. So what the Jews did is they added little im. They borrowed this word out of the Persian Empire. That was, they took the word Lot and they made it Purim. And that was to show that, yeah, Haman cast his lots to kill the Jews. He appealed to the occult and their Persian gods to decide that. But our God is greater. And we will always remember that God is the one who is the sovereign and the true Lord of lords. And so we're going to call it Purim. And notice verse 26, and because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what happened to them, look at verse 27. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all who allied themselves with them. Do you remember that the people in the Persian Empire, when they saw the power of the God of Israel raising up a guy like Mordecai, taking an orphan Jewish girl like Esther and making her queen, seeing the complete reversal, the downfall of Haman, that there were a lot of Persians that actually became Jews. They identified with the God of Israel. They started trusting in him. They started following the practices. That's why they're actually listed here for all those who allied with them so, verse 27, so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. This is something that is to occur in every generation because they're not to forget. They're to have a passion for the living God by recalling his power. And look at verse 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, notice the key word here, every province, and every city, and these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. 
What we need to do is we need to make sure we never forget and that we pass this on to our kids and that our kids keep passing on to their kids so that we will never forget the power of God. And when that happens, there is a passion for God that continues to be fueled among his people. Now, uh, this event of Purim, it is actually still celebrated by the Jews today. So if you have Jewish friends, and we actually have people that have come from Jewish backgrounds who are now trusting Christ as Messiah, they, they're very familiar with this festival. So what happens? It's still celebrated on the 14th and the 15th of Adar. So that would be like equivalent of like, it falls sometimes between like late February, like February 25th, right around there through like late March, like March 25th. Somewhere along the line there, each year kind of changes, is the final month in the Jewish calendar, and they celebrate the Feast of Purim. Now, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Let me give you some of the details of what this looks like. So the 13th day of Adar, they actually have a fast to recall the fast that Esther called and that Mordecai practiced when the Jews then were facing the sentence of annihilation. You remember they fasted and they were praying, they were weeping, they tore their clothes, Mordecai is rolling around in ashes because they were pleading with God that you've got to spare us because we're going to be decimated and we're going to be eliminated. And if that is the case, then Messiah never comes because the Messiah comes from the line of the Jews. And so on the 13th day, they, celebrate, they actually have this fast, and then they go to the synagogue or the temple. Now, now it, it looks pretty different, but one of the key features of the celebration of Purim is that they read the book of Esther. But on this time, when they, when they gather, uh, like the kids wear masks, people wear masks, uh, they have written Haman with chalk on their shoes, and they, it's used to kind of symbolically represent that he's being blotted out. He's being worn away. Uh, when they read the book of Esther, usually it's pretty quiet in synagogues if you've ever been to one. Well, now when they read it, every time Haman's name comes up, they boo and they hiss. Uh, the children have these rattles called Gregors, and they, they shake them. Uh, they, every time his name comes up, they, they like, may his name perish, uh, may he be accursed. And every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, they cheer, okay? So this is very different than how things are usually are at the synagogue. And then they, after they finish their time of reading and their service, then they go home, and this is festive and a celebration. They have all sorts of traditional foods, little triangular, like, pastry sort of dishes sort of thing, and, they, and it is a big party. And part of the big party is that they actually have a lot of drinking, okay? And so I've done some research on this. The Talmud, which is, was the authoritative body for Jewish tradition, they write this, and let me just give you a quote. A person is obligated to become inebriated on Purim until he doesn't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai, okay? I mean, you're pretty, you're gone if you were doing that, okay? And so this is all part of their big party that they've got, and they have all this food and the festival and the kids, and they got their rattles, and, and then guess what? It's a two-day deal. So the next day, they go back at it. They're at the synagogue. They read Esther, and then they go home, and it's party two, okay? And they continue on the festivities. It's all meant to remember God's faithfulness. Now, I'm not sure that's all that God intended. I mean, especially if you read the book of Proverbs and what God says about drunkenness, and yet you got this in the Talmud. I, I think we're a little bit off, but it is still practice. And in theory, they're remembering 
the sovereign, faithful work of God in their past. Now, it's quite different in the, with the Iranian Jews. When's the last time you even thought of the Iranian Jews? They actually still consider themselves descendants of Esther. And when on Purim, they actually go, go to the, the tomb of Mordecai and Esther, and they pray on Purim with the idea that they never forget. Now, let me tell you a very tragic page of world history. There is a significance. The significance of this holiday and the message of Esther were not lost on the Nazis. Nazi Germany, especially their hierarchy of leadership, were extremely alarmed and concerned about the Jews and their practice of Purim. In fact, any Jew that was spot in a prison camp with a copy or even a fragment of the book of Esther was immediately killed. This is uh, because the Jews clung on to this book and even when they were in the prison camps and they were facing annihilation and they knew what was going on, because they were so familiar with the book of Esther and this meant so much to them, they had it memorized and they would write it out. And they still celebrated Purim even though it was against the law because they were reminded that God had promised their survival of the race even against the attempts to annihilate them. And so they would cling on to this. In Adolf Hitler banned and forbade the observance of Purim. In a speech made on November 10th, 1938, Hitler said it could never be practiced. But they were, the Jewish, the, the Jewish people were holding on to this book and the Nazis were going to drive it home and actually use this book and the Jews' celebration of Purim against them. And so what they would do is they would make some of their just most violent attacks on the Jewish people, and they would do it on Purim. So, for instance, Purim, 1942, uh, they, would, they took 10 Jews, and they hung them, and they did so to avenge the hanging of Haman's 10 sons that were, died, that, that were killed and died. Purim Eve, uh, the next year, they took over 100 Jewish doctors and their families, and they shot them. And then on that Purim day, they again took 10 Jews and shot them. They are, they, are reven- they are taking revenge on the Jewish people for what they did to Haman and his sons. In apparent connection made by Hitler, the Nazi regime and their role, he actually saw the role of Haman that he apparently was kind of, he saw what was taking place. So this is what Hitler said in this speech, January 30th, 1944. He said, if the Nazis were defeated, the Jews could celebrate a second Purim. Julius Streicher, he was one of their leading propagandists. He was the founder and publisher of the Der Strömer newspaper. He was, he was trying to continue just to brainwash the German population and try to make it look as if the Jews were going to create some sort of upheaval and actually kill all these Germans. And so he started this major propaganda machine. He's, he's well known. And basically he surmised this. Just as the Jew butchered 75,000 Persians in one night, the same fate would have befallen the German people had the Jews succeeded in inciting a war against Germany. 
the Jews would have instituted a new Purim festival in Germany. And that was what they went with. It was on the forefront of their mind. They wanted to make sure that the Jews were not clinging to any part of this book, the book of Esther, or the God who gave it to them. In fact, Julius Streicher, we all know how World War II ends, he actually went on trial at Nuremberg for crimes against humanity. Of course, he was found to be guilty. When he walks up to the scaffolding before he's executed, do you know what he says? Purimfest, 1946. And then he's killed. We're not to forget. We are to remember God and his faithfulness and his mighty works of power. And you know what it does? It revives a passion and it renews passion for the living God in his people. And let me tell you something else. Not only do we see the power of God to actually bring deliverance from our problems, but we also see that it gives us a passion for God that he can actually transform our lives. What are your problems that you're facing? You got some issues? I've got some. I've got some small ones. I've got some medium-sized ones. I've got a few that are, you know, they weigh on me. Think a lot about them. Do you? Let us not forget God and his power. And God revives like a vitality and a vibrancy and a renewal in our lives as we recall his faithfulness in the past. It's why we are people of the book, so we don't forget. We keep remembering. It's why we study the book of Esther, because God brings transformation to our faith when we see how powerful God is. And you know what else it does? It shows us that God can transform the lives of his people. Look at Esther. Look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with, the, with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther, do you see that, verse 32? command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. Now, here's something pretty fascinating. Here we see Queen Esther, and in verse 29, as the book closes, she is referenced again, the daughter of Ahabahel. You see that she was the orphan girl raised by Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai said, you know, it's not too popular to be Jewish around here. Uh, We're changing your name, Hadassah. We're going to call you Ishtar, Esther. We're going to name you after the goddess of love and war, the Persian goddess of love. That's a nice Persian name. That's going to work just fine around here. Remember, they were completely like, we're going to amalgamate into this culture. We're really going to keep our Jewishness. We're going to be quiet. There's no reference to them ever praying, going to synagogue, reading the scriptures. They're not doing any of that stuff. They're just fitting into the culture, right? But then some pretty significant changes take place. You know, uh, remember that Esther was the one, she was captured by these harem scouts because the king was needing a new queen, so they're looking for those beautiful young gals they can find. She gets acquired. She becomes a secondary concubine wife for the king. She has one night with the king. The king, though, chooses her, and she becomes queen. Now, she's a young guy and gal, and she's got everything that she wants, but let me tell you, 
when Haman got that decree put forth that all the Jews were exterminated, and Mordecai, her adopted dad, said, listen, maybe God has raised you up for such a time like this. There were significant changes that took place in her life, and she went about and actually put her life on the line. She appealed to the king. She went before the king without permission, which is a good way to get yourself killed. The king accepted her. She invited him and Haman to two banquets. And remember, she pointed out that this Haman is the wicked one who's seeking to exterminate my people for I am Jewish without, without completely implicating the king that, hey, you put a death sentence on your own wife, the queen. This is Esther. And she's a transformed individual. In fact, she is an integrated whole when you see her in verse 29. She is Queen Esther. She is the daughter of Abihel. She is, she is not ashamed of her God, of her people. In fact, she is functioning like a spiritual leader. She is actually writing a decree that these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book, and it's the command of, you see that in verse 32? It's the command of Esther. She is powerful. It's pretty amazing because she now enters into the heroic ranks of like Sarah, and uh, another woman by the name of Hannah. But it's interesting, Sarah and Hannah, some of these great women of Scripture, they are noted because they are mothers, and God highly esteems mothers. But Esther is noted because she's a great queen. She has experienced a transformation, and she serves to the betterment of her people. And it just goes to show you that one person can make a significant difference. And don't get the idea that if you're a lady that, oh, you know, God can't use me or I can't be a spiritual leader. Actually, Queen Esther stands out. And if you think that you've, you've made some really bad decisions and you're, you know, you haven't taken your faith very seriously or you've been pretty complacent, you're completely amalgamated into the culture or maybe you're, no one even knows that you're a Christian. God's not through with you yet. Your final chapters haven't been written. He seeks to bring transformation through to his people. And let me tell you how he does that. How does God transform his people? It's one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through the Esther. How does he transform a fallen people? Well, I'll tell you how he did it in Esther's life and how he has been doing it or has done it or is presently doing it in your life. First of all, he brings difficult circumstances. He has to bring you to an end of yourself. God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He has to break you of self-sufficiency to bring you to God dependency. And that may look brutal in your life where it all falls apart because God has to bring you to your knees, which certainly was painful for Esther because it looked like it was at the end of her life and her people are going to be exterminated. But then what God does in the midst of this brokenness, when we turn to him, like you saw them calling for a fast and I'm going to... I'm going to actually tell my maidens, Esther said, that I'm Jewish, and I'm going to have them fast as well. What God does is he starts developing faith in the midst of your difficulty, where you start clinging on to him, you start calling out to him, you're praying, you're broken, you see God as your only hope. You start living differently. Well, you see a developing faith taking place in your life, and as your faith is developing, there are defining decisions decisions where you could either go one way or the other. You know, Queen Esther could have said, yeah, really too bad about all the Jewish people, but you know what? I think I'm going to be safe here in the palace, and I like that I can go shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue and order stuff from Dillard's anytime I want, and I don't think I'm going to do anything about it. 
No, there was a defining decision in your life that, no, God has raised me up for such a time as this, and I will go before the king. And God used her significantly. It was a defining decision. There are decisions that maybe you're even making presently as to who you're going to trust or what you're going to do with your life. This changes it all. And let me tell you the fourth way that God brings about transformation in his fallen people. He displays grace. He gives you grace to see your sinfulness, grace to trust him, grace in circumstances, grace to make decisions, grace maybe he worked it out far better than you ever could imagine. I can assure you there's a lot of people in our church that could stand up and say, man, despite all my waywardness and sinfulness and the bad things I've done, God has been so gracious and mighty and powerful toward me, and I worship him. Let me tell you, that is how a faithful God transforms a fallen people, and we see it in Esther. But there's also another individual that is transformed. Not only do you see it in Esther, but you see transformation in Mordecai. Never underestimate what one person can do. Chapter 10, verse 1, says, Now King Ahasuerus laid tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Mordecai is going to be juxtaposed to Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, most powerful man in the empire. He is the guy. But he needs money. He's suffered defeats. Haman obviously didn't come through with all the promise of the 10,000 talents of silver. He lays tribute on the land. Ahasuerus leads by fear, intimidation, power, grabbing for things. In contrast, look at Mordecai. Verse 2, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Mordecai is different than King Ahasuerus. Mordecai started off weak. He's the guy that told Esther, we got to change your name. Rather complacent, not a spiritual leader. Last guy you'd probably pick. God breaks him. God raises him up. And I want you to see how greatly God uses him. He's very different than Ahasuerus. He reigns and rules with love, care, compassion. He is not about intimidation or fear. Notice, not only for all the Jews, but for the whole nation. You want to see what a good leader looks like, a great one, a great spiritual leader? It's not that your life has been perfect all the way. In fact, there's a lot of issues with Mordecai early on in the early chapters. He becomes a great man because he is transformed by a faithful God. And he lives differently, and he reigns and rules differently. He is second under Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes. And this is written for our instruction that we will see that God has the ability to transform and change his people and use them in significant ways. Now, not everybody's story just ends up like, wow, you end up being like the number two guy in the government, or, or you become this person of great spiritual influence like Esther or Mordecai. But let me assure you, every one person can make a difference. And God is intending that you and I be difference makers in where he has planted us and placed us, in our sphere of influence. And one of the biggest ways that God brings about influence 
is when our testimony is on display. For Esther and Mordecai, they wanted to re- that the people would never forget God's power in their people, among their nation. But it also was a remembrance of what God had done in them. And let me tell you how God does that in our lives. When our transformation is on display like theirs. Don't candy coat your life and make it look all perfect because in actuality we're all sinners and we are saved by grace. And when people can see that God takes wicked, wretched, self-centered, God-defying people and makes them Christ-dependent where they cling to Christ for hope, life, salvation, security, and he becomes their life, when people see the real thing, they are attracted to it. When I was, a, when I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian. I tell my kids that. Neither was my wife. We tell them our story. We tell them that, man, dad was living recklessly. He was far from God. But God transformed him and changed him and gave him life in Christ. And he's taking a feeble life. He's taking a weak person. And he is bringing about transformation in his life. I am far from perfect. You know that. My family knows that. But God doesn't give up on his people. He keeps about his work, and I want to be given over to him. That's my story. In fact, I got to share it yesterday on a Cub Scout camp out, which we shouldn't be camping in November, but we were. I got to share it yesterday with a guy. It's the, it's the story of my life. You have a story. And God shows himself powerful through the transformation of his people, and he's doing so today. And you know why we remember God's past faithfulness? Because rejoicing in God's past faithfulness strengthens our present trust in Him. That's why we celebrate. So like when we come to like communion, you know in communion, we remember Jesus who was sacrificed on our behalf. He took God's full wrath of sin upon His body and bore our sins on His body on the cross. And Jesus says, I want you to remember me. It's a solemn celebration And what it's meant to do is infuse us with a passion for the living God. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving ought to be more than a cowboy football game, huh? Right? Thanksgiving is about being thankful for God, how God has worked and provided in your life, whether you've had little or you've had much, and it keeps our focus on Him. And when we do this right, like like my family, it could easily be about food, okay? I mean, just look at me, right? You know, it could be about food, and it could be about football. But you know what? We got the little deal, we got these five little kernels of corn. Everybody has one. You put it in the dish, and each time you put it in the dish, every person in the family or whoever we got over, they miss something that they're thankful for, and they talk about it. Because we don't want to forget that it's God who's mighty and has been the great provider in our midst. Christmas. You could be all about Santa, and it could all be about gifts, right? And you can blow through the holiday and forget about Jesus, and yet it is a celebration of the fact that the eternal Son of God entered into humanity. He actually entered into humanity by becoming human, and he lives among us perfectly, righteously, and the reason that he does so is so that he could be the sin bearer. And he, on Easter, we celebrate the fact that he was crucified for our sins, and he was resurrected from the grave. And Easter better be more about bunnies. It can't be about bunnies. For a lot of people, it's all about bunnies and food and what we're going to eat, when it should be about the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus so that we don't forget. You know, sometimes I get a little concerned about the world that my kids are going to live in and their kids. If Jesus doesn't come back, it's going to get really bad. We have to celebrate God's 
faithfulness. And so we do. God is the God who can take defeat into victory and turn it into victory, sorrow into joy, and by rejoicing in God's past faithfulness, you know what it does? It strengthens our present trust in Him, and that is what we need. That is what our world needs. People that are absolutely convinced and compelled by the power and the presence of the living God. So when it comes to Veterans Day, you know what? We celebrate. And we do so, and we remember so that we will not forget. And when it comes to the study of the book of Esther, you know why we went through this book? It is so that we will not forget how a faithful God transforms a fallen people and that he is faithful to his people to the end. He has delivered the Jews from annihilation. He has brought the Messiah through the Jewish line as he has promised. And he has given life to all those who will trust Christ. And that is reason to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this amazing book. And God, if there is someone here who has never put their trust in Jesus, that right now they would turn from sin and self-centeredness and just confess they're sinners, put their faith in Christ, and just say, Lord, change me and transform me. Use me. Use my past to weave into the present for a glorious future as I'm united with Christ. And Father, for all of us, Help us to be mindful that you are a faithful God. Help us to celebrate your goodness and your greatness. May we live differently because we're alive in your son and we have a rich heritage which gives us promise of a glorious future. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.